The situation currently taking place in Myanmar is abominable. There's no safety anywhere, and the world has all but turned its back on an entire people trying to claim their freedom and insist upon their human rights in the face of blatant evil and inhumanity. International media seems to have moved on to the next story, scarcely reporting on this one anymore, even as the horror continues. We at Insight Myanmar Podcast find this intolerable, and we stand by the Burmese people and their courageous effort to live in dignity. This platform is dedicated to making sure that we keep the conversation going, while ensuring these voices continue to be heard. Today's guest is one of those, and I invite you to settle in and open to what follows. Why do we fight, you say? We fight so that no man, woman or child will be put to death for wanting the rights they deserve. Why must we pay with our lives for something as simple as freedom? Welcome back to another episode of Inside Myanmar. Today we are joined by Matt Wells, who's the Deputy Director for the Amnesty Crisis Response Team, who's going to be talking about the work and the research that uh, Amnesty has been doing with regards to the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Myanmar. So Matt, thank you for joining us. Would you uh, care to uh, introduce yourself a little bit more broadly to the audience? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm, I'm part of a team at, at Amnesty, the Crisis Response Team, that specializes in investigating human rights violations, uh, crimes under international law, and the si- in situations of armed conflict or other major human rights crises. Um, so we work uh, around the world um, to document war crimes and, and other violations like that. And in particular, a, a colleague and I have been working for um, much of this year on the conflicts in, in eastern Myanmar, um, in documenting crimes by the Myanmar military against civilians there. And it follows on work that, that I've done in the past on crimes against the, the Rohingya population in Rakhine State, um, war crimes in Kachin and Northern Shan State by the military, and also crimes um, against the ethnic Rakhine population in the context of the, the conflicts with the, with the Arakan army. 
Um, and so it's it's work that we have come across in Myanmar again and again and again over the last uh, five years. And uh, and I think it's it's something that really bears repeating that from the outside perspective, we look at Myanmar, we say, well, you know, it's a country in crisis, but it's significantly more complex than that. The crises that unfold in the different parts of Shan State, Kachin State, uh, Chin Rakhine, um, and Karen Kareni states are actually very different crises. They're, they're very different conflicts with very different um, histories and and uh, and sort of cultural uh, impetus. So I think it is it is useful then to note that just because we're we're talking about the crisis in one part of the country, that does not mean that we're necessarily developing a better understanding of the crisis in other part of the country or or coming up with. Um, with solutions to that. So with that in mind, could you could you tell us a little bit about the background? Like what what has Myanmar been like from a humanitarian perspective under the military, particularly in these border regions uh, over the last couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it's a, it's a really good point to make. And, and uh, of course, in addition to the complexities um, in different parts of the country and, and that relate to... Um, different ethnic minorities and their efforts for, for decades for greater autonomy and for, for respect for their rights. You also now have the, the situation you know, in the aftermath of the coup in February last year. Um, and so there are, there are many layers of what's happening right now in different parts of the country. Um, uh, but one commonality, one thing that, that we do see across different regions is, is patterns of crimes by the Myanmar military against Civilians, they, they they resort to very similar tactics again and again, and so what we've seen you know, in Amnesty's work now for for several decades in, in Myanmar is uh, often a resort to collective punishment of civilians. So instead of operations going after ethnic armed groups or other fighters, the the military often sets its sights on entire civilian populations in these areas, people that it perceives to support ethnic armed groups or to you know, provide some sort of assistance to them. And so um, often then in, in the way that it fires artillery or mortars and the way that it sweeps up people um, often just on the basis of, of, of their ethnicity and in, in, in arrests um, and then subject them to, to torture and, and other abuses and the way that they cut off or make extremely difficult the the movement of humanitarian assistance into into these areas into areas ethnic minority areas across the country and we see this this resort to very similar brutal tactics that consistently violate international law and that, and that subject civilians in these er, in these areas to to really horrific abuses again and again I mean, certainly, this is the sort of story that we've uh, we've seen play out in a lot of other countries, um, typically in the context of terrorist groups like ISIS. So it's it's very disheartening um, to see it, it playing out in in Myanmar as well. Would you say, though, has there been any uh, quote unquote positive impact for the military from this? Has has this just unbridled assault? On civilian populations, actually resulted in uh, in territorial gains for the military or a reduction in uh, in counter military insurgencies around the country. I, I think the sh- the short answer is is no. Um, in that, um, mm. you know, we have seen really now a proliferation of 
of armed groups and, and of an uprising against the military, particularly in the aftermath of the coup with you know the rise of the the PDFs in, in many parts of the country now operating alongside um, many of the longstanding ethnic arm organizations. So I think, you know, today the military is, is, is fighting on more fronts than it has in a really long time. And it, it is, it's finding, a, you know, an enormous swath of, of the population that is now in active opposition to it, whether that be in, in forms of you know, civil disobedience and, and kind of the, the incredible, um, you know, protests and efforts being made by by civilians across the country since the coup, or whether that be in, in um, you know, more and more people now taking up arms in, in the fight um, for their rights and, and against the military. And so <clears throat> I think it, the military in many ways sees a a bigger threat um, today than it than it than it has in a long time, um, and in in response to that, it's in the way that it commits these abuses. It you know it, it is furthering that more and more because again it, it's treating entire populations as if they are if they are the enemy are the enemy as if it is appropriate to, to target them when um, of course it's 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 clear under under international law and, and otherwise that, that that's absolutely forbidden and yet they they continue um, to resort to that I think in terms of at times the military has and we saw this in our work um, in in Eastern Myanmar at times the military will have you know success in a particular operation in which it's trying to take, a very specific road or control some sort of route for a period of time. But in doing so, it is then burning villages. It is forcibly displacing tens of thousands of, of people from villages. It is firing indiscriminately um, in ways that are you know, killing large numbers of civilians and um, and injuring many more and, and devastating civilian infrastructure, homes and, and hospitals and schools and, um, uh, you know, all sorts of, of, of civilian property throughout these areas. And, and in so doing it, it, you know, while it may take a road in the short term, um, it's showing that, you know, it, it, it's only resort is to these sorts of brutal tactics that over the long run are, are driving people away from the military and in, in, in a desperate desire to, to see to see change and to see the consolidation of, of, of the rule of law and in a respect for human rights across the country. And so we know from uh, from just years and years of experience that the military does not care about the condemnation of the international community. They don't really care about international law. Uh, they've certainly done their best to shirk responsibility by refusing to uh, sign their own statute and become uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, for example. But why? The, the obvious question has to be, why does the military continue to double down on this mentality of... Um, to, to put it very simplistically, we are entitled by the mandate of heaven to rule, and anybody who does not recognize that needs to be punished into at least respecting that. When it has objectively not worked for them, it has objectively not brought them strategic benefits. And indeed, I, I would argue that following 1988, and, uh, and even as we saw in the, let's say, the faux reformations of 2010 and beyond, it appeared that the military finally got it through their heads that you need to have at least 
a veneer of democratization, you need to have some level of, of visible reform and some reduction in cruelty in order to more effectively govern, in order to get better outcomes nationally. Why then do they continue to bounce back into this mentality of just squeeze the civilians more and somehow things will be good? I mean, uh, the first thing I'd say is I think it's it's um, it's difficult to, to get inside of the the mentality, the mindsets, especially of the senior leadership of, of the military, at least for, you know, for us and others, we, we've often tried to engage at times, we even tried to engage, you know, with this most recent report in, in, in sending right of reply letters to try to get um, their response on issues. And they, um, to us, you know, for years have been, have been closed off. And so um, I think it's, it, it's a real challenge to, to get, um, them on the record or even, you know, informally um, speaking to these things at all. I mean, I think, you know, in just in terms of conjecture, I think, I think the military probably recognizes right now that it is, um, you know, facing uh, a, a larger scale um, you know, threat and opposition to, to its rule and to its practices than it, than it has in a long time. And I, I um, and I think the, the response to that is then doubling down on what they've done in the past in order to to maintain, um, you know, some sort of, of power and control. And that I think, you know, it's clear after after decades of this, and that there's it's difficult to imagine that that there is a, an ability for this leadership of the military to, you know, to make inroads and in actually gaining legitimacy with with ethnic minorities that they have subjected to to abuses for 20, 30, 40 years. And so instead, when now faced with a threat and in a, in a, in an even, again, wider uprising and movement than in the past, it's they have doubled down and entrenched and are going back to the worst of their of their practices um, uh, that we've seen. So with that in mind, uh, let's move forward to the actual report that uh, that Amnesty published, which I believe you and, and one of your colleagues worked on and and uh, and published. What ultimately are the findings of the report? I mean, we will link the report down below for uh, for anybody who's who's interested in reading it. But in your own words, what are the the key takeaways? So we were on the the Thailand Myanmar border in in March and in April of this year, looking really in detail at the military operations starting from December of 2021 through right now. Um, so looking in, in real time at the types of operations the military is undertaking in, in Karen and Kareni or um, Cayenne and Kaya states in particular, and the crimes associated with those. And what we found, for example, is, is really, you know, widespread assault on civilian populations through unlawful attacks by ground and air. Um, so above all, you know, we documented 24 attacks by artillery or mortars in which civilians were killed or injured, um, or in which civilian homes or other infrastructure were destroyed. And very often what this was is just the relentless firing of mortars into villages day and night for days at a time. And in many of the incidents that we looked at, 
there were no lawful targets in the area. You know, there were no fighters from an ethnic armed organization nearby. There was no base um, of an ethnic armed organization or a PDF nearby. The military was just firing relentlessly mortars or artillery shells into villages. You know, I mean, one example um, from March of this year, um, for example, people were gathering for a Buddhist religious festival. They were doing traditional Karen dance in, in the evening. And in the midst of that, two mortar shells landed right um, right amid those who were who were doing the traditional dance. And it, it, it killed um, three civilians and, and injured 11 more. And it was you know, one horrific um, incident, but it was one that was replicated again and again in, in what we were documenting. Um, and we also documented a number of airstrikes on villages and, and um, even an IDP camp that was hit in January in the middle of the night. Um, again, killing killing three people in this case, um, including two sisters, who were fifteen and, and twelve years old. Um, and this IDP camp, I mean, it, it it should have been well known to the military. In any sort of aerial reconnaissance, you, you could see that this is, you know, a place where civilians were living. This has nothing to do with any sort of of um, uh, you know fighters or, or members of of any armed group, and yet. Again, the military is is hitting these civilian areas over and over and over again, causing significant um, numbers of, of death and injuries, and ultimately leading to to massive displacement um, across these areas. It, in addition, we found that you know many people after they're displaced, they're displaced with nothing more than the clothes on their back and what little that they can carry, and you know after weeks or months in displacement, people often try to then sneak back to their villages to pick up a, a rice sack or whatever whatever they could then bring back to their displacement site to, to feed themselves and their family. And very often, especially you know, men or older boys who, if they're moving in these areas in eastern Myanmar, if they come across the, the military, if they come across the checkpoints or other positions of, of soldiers, they are arbitrarily detained um, subjected to, to, to torture and other real treatments, and in some cases are summarily executed. Um, so we had an example, a case that we documented from late January in, in San Pia Six Mile Village in, in Kareni or Kaya States, where, where three men, again, tried, tried to go back home in order to just pick up some vegetables and basic food from their, from their village, and their families never heard from them again. And it was several weeks later in, in early February that their bodies were found. They'd actually been thrown into a, a pit latrine um, after having been killed. And then when people tried to go and um, collect their bodies just to be able to bury them, um, a brother of, of one of the victims and others who tried to collect the bodies were then shot at um, by the military from a position nearby just as they tried to collect the bodies. And it was ultimately not until the end of March, um, two months after they went missing and, and some six weeks after the bodies were first found before the family members were finally able to, to remove um, the bodies and, and to give them a proper burial. And again, just one example, but it speaks to a much wider pattern that we saw. And then the last kind of pattern that I'll talk about quickly is, is just pillaging and burning. And very often when the military is driving people away through this relentless attack by ground and air that the soldiers then go into a village, um, you know, where people have been forcibly displaced from and they 
steal everything of value. They steal money, jewelry, livestock, clothes, rice, anything that they can take, um, they then truck away. And then at times we had, we interviewed witnesses who described soldiers slashing rice sacks when they couldn't carry everything, you know, to destroy a food supply that'll have an effect on these, these villages for months to come that now they're the food that they harvested last year is, has been destroyed. And then in some areas, especially of, of Kayar, Karini State, the, the military has systematically burned villages as it's moved through. So we could see, not just from, from witness testimony, but from satellite imagery that we have access to and that's included in the reports, that um, over a number of villages, as the military moved through, it burned large swaths of these villages, burning homes, burning you know markets, burning everything um, in in some villages. In in one village, um, for example, um, we we were able to 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 spot more than two hundred fifty structures. It was around two thirds um, of the village that had been burned by the military um, over over several periods in in February and, and March of this year. And again, it speaks to this this collective punishment of of entire civilian populations um, in these area areas that that has profound effects to today and and is going to continue to have a profound effect on on civilian populations in these areas for for months and potentially years to come. I mean, it's it's absolutely harrowing uh, the stories that we're hearing and the things that you're saying. You know, they absolutely track with the stories that we've heard coming out of the west of the country, particularly in Chin State. We've heard um, the annual food supplies being being stolen or being destroyed. And then on top of that, uh, the fields being completely uh, burned, making it impossible to grow food for the coming year. We've seen the, the mindless destruction of civilian houses in uh, places like Tantlang which has been hit multiple times by the military. And, and I know that on this podcast, we've actually interviewed um, Kumbedu um, of the Karenian Nationalities Defense Force, who similarly recounted that uh, IDP camps were being repeatedly targeted by the military, uh, even though the PDF were not hiding their location and they were, they were located dozens of miles away. You know, specifically to to avoid the excuse of military targets um, near villages and IDP centers. So it's it's absolutely um, grueling. But you know, as as unpleasant as the question may be, it has to be raised. What is the methodology, right? What do we? How can we be sure of these results? How can we be sure of these? I mean, we don't have government figures because there is no functioning government. The military is not likely to talk to us. Uh, we have a lot of people saying a lot of different things, but how can you be sure of the numbers that you have? No, it's, I mean, it's a great question and a, and a really important one. And I think, you know, the first thing to indicate is that in the way that we do our work at Amnesty and, and you know, particular documentation that we're doing as the crisis response team, we are, we are not you know, trying to come to a, a total number of um, civilians who have been killed or um, the total number of civilians who have been detained. I mean, there are, you know, good numbers out there um, from organizations like um, the Assistance Association for, for Political Prisoners who, you know, keep a, a very regular um, updating total on um, on issues like that. The, the work that we are doing is far more about 
really going deep on a number of, of individual incidents to be able to establish patterns of violations by the military. Um, and so, for example, you know, when we document eight airstrikes um, is what we focused on in terms of airstrikes specifically in our report. And in doing that, to, to come to a place in which we feel confident in speaking about those airstrikes, we are interviewing you know, generally multiple direct witnesses to specific, those specific airstrikes. We are then also um, using satellite imagery to check for craters or, or other indications of, of an airstrike to, to corroborate what we're hearing from witnesses. We um, have access to, to flight spotter information in which, you know, people are indicating that a fighter jet is taking off from a specific airport at a specific time headed in the direction, for example, of, of Cayenne State, um, and then returns to that airport at that time. And then we can look at satellite imagery to make sure are the, the type of fighter jet that the spotter is indicating, is that actually on the tarmac of that airport at that time? And if so, then it lines up as, as further you know corroboration um, for it. We both through people we interview who provide us with, you know, photo material, video material of the aftermath of an airstrike um, or things that are posted on social media. We then have people on our on our team and what we call the, the evidence lab um, at Amnesty who specialize in verifying that, you know, that photograph or that video is actually from the village where it's indicated and from the, the date and time um, indicated. And so ultimately then, uh, you know, we were able to piece all of these different sorts of, of evidence together from you know, testimony from witnesses to satellite imagery, to photo and video material, to flight spotter info, you know, all of this um, comes together to be able to then feel that for this specific incident, we have enough evidence to feel very confident in what we're saying about what happened um, on that day at that time. And then if you build enough of those incidents together in, in a similar way that ultimately then you can establish with confidence, um, again, that the patterns of how the military is carrying out attacks by air or, or with mortars. Um, and so we, we can from those specific incidents, you know, feel very confident in the specific number of, of people, or at least a certain number of people who were killed and injured in those specific incidents, um, which is generally our focus as opposed to, you know, being able to capture all of the civilian casualties that have happened um, in eastern Myanmar, much less across you know, the entire country since, since the coup. Wow, so pretty comprehensive stuff. And and it is it is interesting to know that you're talking about things like craters. You're talking about seeing a physical plane on a tarmac. Like there is a lot of uh, physical evidence available that you might not um, you might not imagine because we see, you know, we see soldiers do things if we're lucky enough to get a recording of it. Uh, we see houses burning. Obviously you can't hide the fact that a house has been burned down, but uh, something like being able to count craters of of, of airstrikes. I mean, that's pretty uh, that's pretty solid, pretty reliable. It's not something that I would have I would have thought of. But I want to talk about um, footage specifically. 
Uh, we've seen with other crises, obviously, Ukraine has dominated the media. We've seen a lot of footage of you know, rocket strikes. We've seen footage of the aftermath of crimes being uncovered. We've seen a lot of footage of captured soldiers um, confessing. And there, there is just a lot of visual evidence direct from the ground that uh, helps to to really spread the information, spread awareness, and has really helped to capture the, the attention of the international community. While by contrast in Myanmar, in many of these regions which are hardest hit, there has been an absence of electricity for extended periods of time. Uh, many of these regions have been in extended internet blackouts. Is, is that sort of thing something that is a hindering uh, our understanding of the true scale of what's going on? Is that something that's hindered uh, your work in any way? I think it, I think it has had a, an impact on, on you know, how closely the, the international community, media and others are, are, are following the situation. And it's, it's, um, you know, I think, I think this is part of the, the military's strategy. You know, they cut off communications. They, you know, monitor communications when they're not cut off such that it, it, you know, makes it, um, dangerous from a security perspective, you know, for people who are trying to, to compile this, this sort of evidence inside. And, and all of that then means that there is yeah less, less coming out, um, here than, in other places. And we also see that in just in terms of the sheer access, you know, inside the country, um, you know, documenting violations by local civil society groups who were doing unbelievable work, but, but at enormous risk. Um, and of course, without, uh, you know, uh, without the military's authorization to, to, to do this work, um, in the first place to, to document. And so, um, you contrast that to a, to a situation, you know, like Ukraine, where there is an enormous presence in the country of international media, of um, of human rights actors, of, of others who are able to get to sites and to then put that information out immediately. Whereas the you know the military, by really shutting down the country, by arresting activists, by um, you know cutting off the country from uh, UN human rights actors from other sorts of, of international investigators. Um, you know, it is it is it's a deliberate effort to to keep this information from getting out. And unfortunately, it has been having success in that in that you know when you look at the attention paid to the situation in Myanmar by the UN Security Council or by other you know major multinational bodies, it is it's it's embarrassingly. Um, limited, you know, despite the fact that, that we know the the enormous human cost of, of what's happening right then, right now in in Myanmar, um, and, and so there is a desperate need. In fact, all the more so because of how far the military is going to blocking information that the international community really needs to to, to redouble its efforts to bring attention to to what's happening on the ground because without that, it it will continue to stay out of the headlines and out of the attention in a way as even as civilians continue to, to suffer on a massive scale. And so let's talk about um, the, that suffering and let's talk about how the situation is, is unfolding because we've seen in the past, obviously, a lot of these tactics that we've already discussed. But 
let's focus on the differences. This conflict has been described as the first of its kind. There have been many conflicts in Myanmar, but there have been many firsts following the coup. Um, unprecedented levels of unification and, and cooperation between EAOs. We've seen the ethnic Bama uh, joining resistance organizations by the thousands uh, and collaboration between the ethnic Bama and the EAOs again um, for, for the first time on this scale that we've ever seen. But as far as the military is concerned, how have their tactics changed, if at all? I think the number one way that their tactics have changed have been through the increasing reliance on airstrikes. Um, and they've, they've used, you know, airstrikes in the past. I mean, I've, uh, I've documented airstrikes at times in the conflicts in Kachin and Northern Shan state back in 26, 2017, or in Rakhine state against the Arakan army in, in 2018, 2019. But when you compare the, the intensity, the frequency of airstrikes in those conflicts in the past versus what's happening right now in in eastern Myanmar, it's it's I mean it's of an entirely different scale, um, and so the way that they are you know, pounding civilian areas as, as well as um, you know positions of the EAOs and PDFs with airstrikes is is really of a different order from what we've seen in the past, and that that's having profound impacts on the civilian population. I mean, there were a number of people that we interviewed who, you know, I mean, they were, they're terrorized, traumatized every time they hear an, an airplane flying by, you know, even if, even if that's not for, to actually, you know, fire a, a missile or to, to launch an, a, another sort of attack. I mean, the, at this stage, the, the mere flying of, of, of military aircraft or even any aircraft in this area has such a profound impact on on mental health of, of people in the in the area. I mean, such that you know people were describing to us, especially because of the airstrikes at night, and also at times the the mortar attacks at, at night. You know, people are sleeping underneath the you know the stilts of, of of their homes because they can't feel any safety to to sleep inside their home at night because of the way that the military has attacked. And I think that's. You know, it's it's related, but also a, a second difference is how often attacks right now are happening at nighttime, um, as opposed to at least when you know when I've documented military operations in the past and in other parts of the country. Primarily, those operations were taking place you know, during the day. The firing was taking place during the day, whereas now, whether it's with mortars, whether it's with airstrikes, you have just so much firing throughout the night. And again, what that means in terms of people not feeling they can be in their villages safely, you know, even at nighttime to sleep. And so people have then fled further and further from their village to a displacement site. And then ultimately to, to caves or very deep um, in the jungle, because it, that it's only there that they can find any sort of refuge from the relentless assault by, by the military. But while, you know, there may be a bit more safety security from airstrikes or, or mortillery, mortar fire in those, um, you know, extremely remote areas, it's been much harder to, to access people with humanitarian assistance um, or assistance of any kind. And so there, that also then has a, a further knock-on effect in terms of people's access to food and water and, 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 and the most basic of, of health care. And it all, again, stems from this pounding of civilian areas day and night with 
airstrikes and artillery and mortar fire. And it's, it's something that I've heard, and I don't know how accurate that is, but basically what I'm being told is that the, this reliance on airstrikes just comes from the fact that on the ground, the military is not as effective as they thought that they would be. Um, I mean, they're excellent, obviously, when they're when they're shelling a village or or when they're you know just firing indiscriminately into civilian crowds. Uh, but when they're actually faced with um, armed resistance, they're just they're borderline useless. And so they're relying very heavily on shelling, and they're relying very heavily on airstrikes, and they're relying very heavily on attack helicopters in order to gain that um, that strategic edge. But what what you've been saying this whole time is basically that. It, it isn't even strategic. It's not that they're using air superiority to fight back against the PDF. They're using their air superiority, if I'm understanding correctly, to double down on assaulting civilian targets and civilian settlements. Would, would that be fair? It's a, it's a combination of the two. It's certainly, it's absolutely the case that in many of these instances, it is just um, targeting, directing that fire at civilian populations as part of, um, as part of instilling this fear and, and, and punishment. I, I guess if, um, if when we're trying to, to venture a guess, I, I mean, I think it does also go back to the, the historic, you know, four cuts um, policy and idea and, and, in so doing, they are driving people out of these villages, um, and I guess in you know in their perception, then making it harder um, on whether it's the EAOs or, or PDFs in, in terms of you know not having um, uh, civilian presence throughout these areas because they're they're being driven you know to more and more remote areas. But you know that is a um, you know, incredibly, as you said, in terms of, you know, there's no long-term strategic uh, thought there, or certainly, you know, ability to to ever come back from that and be seen as a, um, you know, a force that, that respects the rights of, of, of ethnic minorities in this area when they have subjected them to this relentless barrage for, um, for more than a year now. So let's now sort of expand uh, our scope a little bit and, um, and start thinking about, you know, what, what can be done. We're obviously dealing with a humanitarian crisis, but I, I wonder if there's any way that you can help to illustrate the scale that we're talking about. So this, this is a country of 54 million people, give or take. Um, if the war ended tomorrow, you know, let's say the military lays down their arms and they just disappear. What is still the scale of humanitarian crisis with regards to things like COVID, with regard to things like displacement and homelessness, with regards to things like power insecurity, food insecurity, all these sorts of issues compounded? How, how big of a problem are we talking about? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think, um, you know, there's, there's several things here. I mean, first is if, if we just look at if we start again, you know, looking at Eastern Myanmar in a state like Kaya, Kareni, I mean, at this point, it's between a third to a half of the entire population of that state is displaced. Um, you know, so in terms of the proportion of the impact of, of the conflicts right now and the military's 
um, abuses. It's it's enormous in these areas in terms of just how many people, percentage of people who've been driven from from their homes. Then you add to that the fact that you know many of the homes have been damaged or destroyed by airstrikes or mortar fire, or they have been burned to the ground systematically, you know, by the military, what that would entail in terms of rebuilding, you know, all of that infrastructure um, will be enormous. You add to that the fact that the military is, as we talked about, systematically pillaging, you know, many of the villages that they're taking. And so the wealth that's been pulled away, I mean, the basic mechanisms of livelihoods that are being pulled away in terms of you know people's livestock and even just the cash that they hold in their home and all of that now being you know stolen in, in certain villages or certain areas and what that means for people's ability to to rebuild their lives. I mean I remember in particular there was there was this older woman who I interviewed. She was in her 70s and she had been driven from her village and went back a couple of days later to find that the military had ransacked you know her home stolen all the money and, and what she told me is that money that she had in her home is money that her children and grandchildren had sent her to be able to prepare for medical needs and health needs that she would have at, at this stage of her life and now that all has been taken away because of the military's pillaging and again this is the case for for tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people in 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 conflict areas and then, you know, adding on top of that, you have that right now is is the planting season. You know, this is when people need to start preparing, um, start the process of, of, of farming for what will be the next harvest. And so many of them are displaced. They're away from their homes, away from their villages, um, and can't go back to them safely. And so you not only have a crisis of, of now in terms of the homes burned and the food stolen, but you have a crisis that's going to get likely significantly worse because many people are not able to now, you know, plant in order to, to harvest in, in, in the coming season. And so what that will mean for long-term food insecurity is, is enormous. Um, and then finally, you have a, a real decimation of, of the health infrastructure in these areas. And that happens because, you know, hospitals and other health facilities have been bombed, um, it happens because people have been forced to, to flee from you know, many of the towns where um, the bigger hospitals or health facilities were to go, you know, again, deeper into the jungle or into caves for, for their safety. And that means, you know, that everything from, um, as you said, the you know, COVID-19 response to, to vaccinations more generally for, for, for kids and others, um, to just the the basic infrastructure for you know primary healthcare has been decimated um, throughout these areas, and and that will have um, long term ramifications. And so you know there's this there's an enormous need now to to get far more creative with the humanitarian response, to scale up that response, and and to find creative ways to make sure that assistance is getting through to these communities that are that are hardest hit. Um, because without it, again, the situation is already you know, quite dire, and it is likely to get significantly more so. So let's let's talk about the the response itself. Um, very disturbingly, we have seen that ASEAN has agreed, as part of their response uh, package, 
to use the aid distribution mechanisms that are overseen by the military. And unsurprisingly, even on paper, uh, the military's distribution mechanism is designed to benefit those areas that are under firm military control, that are in the center of the country, that are Baban-dominated, and um, would not include places like Chin State or Kareni State, which have been very, very aggressively hit by the military. Uh, but even straying away from the theory, uh, I personally have heard reports, although I can't corroborate them, that uh, that some of the, the things being sent in aid uh, wind up being sold for cash in markets. You know uh, that there is there is uh, widespread corruption, and there is basically just the exploitation of international aid for personal gain and personal profit. Now, the question is, what obstacles are being faced by actors who want to help distribute aid in actually making sure that that aid gets to the communities that need it the most? Yeah, I mean, it is, this is, I think, one of the most pressing questions, and one of the 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 most pressing issues to um, to try to get resolved or to get significant improvements on, I think, you know, you you first have the long-standing military obstructionism that we saw even prior to the coup in terms of humanitarian response in in conflict areas, where they, you know, the number of of hoops that a humanitarian actor has to jump through in terms of the different authorizations and the fact that those are ever changing and you know the person that you have to go to this week is changed by the next week and it's all a kind of delay tactic to make um the the delivery of assistance as as difficult and as controlled as possible but then you have a you know a second level, particularly, and as as you said as well, from what you've heard, in areas that are controlled by or largely administered by ethnic arm um, organizations, where there there's a much more you know complete blocking of or ex- at least extreme limiting of the assistance that gets through. And, you know, for example, and for the report that, that we just published, um, interviewed doctors and nurses and others who were trying to to move aid, specifically, you know, medical supplies, and medications through to, to EAO controlled areas and had several incidents in which, you know, vehicles that were bringing medical supplies destined for civilians in these areas were not only stopped by the military, but the the goods on board were were actively seized um, by the military, um, and this is something that that others have have documented and and reported on as well. And so you have again the the manipulation of humanitarian assistance or the ability to deliver life saving aid is part and parcel of this wider strategy of collective punishment. You know, the, the ability to choke off assistance that's destined for civilians in um, EAO-controlled parts of the country is, for the military, I mean, just another part of the types of, of war crimes and what we have, we have said are likely crimes against humanity being committed against civilians in these areas. And so what... <laughs> 
what is the international response looking like? Because we've got some in the international community who say that they want to help, but they really don't do much. You've got some in the international community who will help, but because they are apolitical and they, they don't want to take the risk, they're willing to use the military's own um, a distribution methodology and the military's own systems. And it's, you know, it's, it's laughable, but this is something that, that we've seen all the way going back to, to Cyclo Nargis, um, and those who remember the, the corruption surrounding that when, when the military uh, temporarily changed the exchange rate from 1,000 chat to the dollar to 6 chat to the dollar uh, so that they could pocket the, the difference. It's something that we know is not useful, and yet many international aid organizations have felt compelled to use these, these uh, channels which they know are corrupt in the hopes of at least getting something through. Um, and then, of course, you do have organizations who are principled and they say, no, we're not going to work with the military. But they are, uh, you know, as you've noted, facing a lot of obstacles. And uh, in a lot of cases, getting aid to places like Chin State or Karen State or any state can mean literally illegally smuggling goods across across borders. So it's a very difficult situation for the international community, whether it's government or whether it's NGO. Uh, and I don't envy the decisions that they have to make. But what are we generally looking at? How is the international community leaning between these options? I mean, I think the first thing that needs to be done is actually far more consistent communication with the civil society organizations on both sides of the, the border in these areas who have been navigating these dynamics for years, if not decades in many cases, and who are who have far better and I think more creative ideas about how to manage this and how to make sure assistance is getting to the people who, who need it most because they they live and work in these settings in a in a way that um, yeah gives an insight that's 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 fundamentally you know deeper and, and, and more profound. And so I think that the starting point needs to be engaging with them around how um, how delivery can best be done so as to actually reach those who, who need it most. And then, you know, that then needs to include pressure on or, you know, discussions with the, the, the Thai authorities, if we're talking about Karen and Kareni, for example, to, to make sure that, that assistance can move um, across the border. And in such a way that you don't have to rely on the military. Um, you know, there are areas around here that are around that part of the border that are controlled by ethnic armed organizations that are administered by ethnic armed organizations. And so there needs to be a lot more creativity about moving assistance through those areas such that it reaches civilians who are being um, hit in, you know, consistently by, by the military. Um, in, in, in other parts of the country, um, you know, I think there's going to have to of course be navigating of, the, the military or the SAC dynamics when you're talking about areas that it, you know, controls to, to varying degrees. But there are many of these areas that it that it doesn't control. And so it if if we're adopting an approach in which everything has to go through the military or, you know, by definition, then you are ignoring significant parts of the country that are being hammered by the military and where there's a desperate need for assistance to get through. And so, coming back to the amnesty report that you've uh, that that you co-authored, 
What impact, if anything, do you expect that that report is going to have uh, on the international community? I mean, Amnesty International is, is, is a very highly respected organization and, and their words carry significant weight. Uh, but do you, do you expect that your report is going to help motivate uh, these sorts of changes that you're talking about in the international response? I mean, we will certainly we will certainly try for that. Um, you know, we we have done meetings in in New York with um, you know, UN Security Council members. We've done meetings with the U.S. governments. We've done meetings with with other governments. We've met with representatives from ASEAN um, countries, uh, and so I you know we are trying to make sure that 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 our findings and the 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 enormous needs and really the you know again the the nature of the military's crimes, which are uh, consistently war crimes and, and likely crimes against humanity, that this is um, getting to, to actors who have the ability to influence the situation on the ground, um, getting to them directly recommendations that we're making around the humanitarian situation and how best to respond to it, but also around issues of, of accountability and around an arms embargo. I mean, we believe deeply that there needs to be a comprehensive arms embargo I- imposed on on Myanmar. You know, it, at this stage, how could it be any clearer that any weapon sold or transferred to the Myanmar military is, is very likely to be used against civilians? We've seen this again and again. We see it every day in different parts of the country. And so we need to see a, the flow of weapons into Myanmar stopped. And that includes things like military-grade aviation fuel that are then used in the fighter jets that are pounding civilian areas. And so there's there's a number of pressure points um, that can be put on the military to try to, to, you know, limit its ability to inflict such devastation on civilians. Um, And ultimately, if we're talking about, you know, longer term and what's needed, we need to see justice, real accountability for the military's crimes, the crimes that it's committing right now in eastern Myanmar, the crimes that it's committing right now in, in, Chigen, in Chin and Sagain and elsewhere, and the crimes that it's committed, you know, both in the past and now against um, the Rohingya and, and, and other populations across the country. And so it's, it's only through accountability through a real reckoning with the military's crimes and the way that is operated for decades that we're likely to see a move out of this and to, uh, you know, the ability to, to, um, to see a military and a, a government more generally that respects the rights of all of those across the country, um, as opposed to what we've seen now for, for far too long. And again, particularly in the aftermath of the coup in which those weapons are repeatedly um, trained on civilians. So I, th- I think you've touched on some very important points here. And the first one, I, I want to go back to something you just said. You know, how clearer could it be that weapons sold to the military are going to be used for murdering civilians? I think I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head and, and also opened the window onto a, a, a broader question here. They know, I mean, they know. They, the only country in the United Nations that actively opposed arms embargoes on Myanmar was shock horror, Belarusia. Um, and they are themselves a military dictatorship. The countries who are supporting 
the the junta openly whether it's russia whether it's uh, i've heard reports though i can't corroborate them that they've been um engaging with the uh, the revolutionary guard of iran um whether it's you know china as tacitly as they're doing it these countries know full well what those resources whether it's aviation uh, parts and we've just seen uh, the UK putting sanctions on on three Russian agencies that uh, that sell aviation uh, parts for the military to to repair their aircraft, uh, or whether it's ammunition, whether it's arms, whether it's aviation fuel, what have you. They know exactly what it's going to be used for. The amnesty report is not going to make a difference on that. They're they're fully aware of this. So what is it that we can do internationally to strangle this this um, trade? of the the tools of murder when information is not the issue it's apathy and and an indifference to suffering that is driving it i think the first thing i'd say is i i I agree i agree for the most part with with how you just with how you framed that but i do think while there is um well there is lots of information out there if you look, for example, at how the UN Security Council has, has treated Myanmar versus other crises around the world, I mean, it has it is held no open meetings in a really long time on Myanmar, and even the closed-door meetings are incredibly rare. And so even the, the active discussions, open discussions um, in, in the international fora where this is meant to be you know, debated and discussed and to have information put in the public domain in front of countries around the world, it's not happening on Myanmar in the way that it is for other crises. And that, that to me is, is one of the first things that, that has to change. And we need to see countries, and, and I think it's often too easy for countries to, to look at, you know, a Russia veto or a China veto and to then not, you know, make the, the effort to make the push to at least force you know that veto force China to have to make the the decision to you know to veto a resolution on a strong resolution on on Myanmar as opposed to, to often now we end up in a situation in which you know countries are in effect kind of censoring themselves or, or, or keeping this out of the public domain you know looking for a, a consensus that that we all know is not um, you know coming quickly. And so we, we need to see far more discussion on this because it, it lowers the costs for the military and for those who are protecting it when very little discussion is happening in, in a public domain. And then the second thing I'd say is that, you know, there are, while it's true that, that many of those actors that you just named, you know, they, their opinions will not change from an amnesty report or a UN report or, again, the incredible work being done by, by civil society organizations on, on the ground. But um, there, are, there are other ways to, to, to squeeze this at least a little bit to have an effect. I mean, it's not, it's not only those countries who are involved in um, you know, the, the movement of, of fuel, of aviation fuel, for example, um, into the country that ultimately reaches the the military, um, and there are ways, whether it's through, you know, financial sanctions on those who are responsible for for human rights abuses, whether it is making much more real the possibility of criminal investigation for the military's crimes. Um, you know, there are 
there needs to be far more attention paid and then creativity given in terms of finding ways to um, to make it more difficult for the military to continue to commit these sorts of violations and to really um, escalate the the pressure and the consequences for when it does. And so I'm, I'm glad you you moved in that direction because that's something that I wanted to um, to move on to now. And that's the question of legal recourse. And I think it's it's a very complex, tricky situation when we look at something like this. Uh, domestic legislation in Myanmar is complicated, but basically for decades, obviously, the military have been writing their own laws. And not only writing their own laws, but writing their own constitutions to underpin those laws. And prosecutions domestically um, under legislation that has been passed by uh, you know the the CRPH would be quite um, contentious. Myanmar is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, so that puts limitations on the impact that the International Criminal Court can have. Uh, even even the Rohingya genocide case was brought in the International Court of Justice um, by by the Gambia uh, against Myanmar as a whole, as the International Court of Justice has to target countries as a whole, not individual actors within those countries, as the ICC would be able to do. Uh, I've heard people arguing that uh, the Geneva Conventions, to which Myanmar is a signatory, do open the door to any signatory state carrying out prosecutions. Um, as long as any of the members of the junta voluntarily leave Myanmar and, and uh, subject themselves to the possibility of arrest and prosecution on those grounds. But what do you think is, is the most likely or the most effective form of legal recourse moving forward against the junta? Well, I think I think your question actually touches on the the most important strategy here, which is that all options need to be on the table, and we need um, you know all actors who can play a role in justice and accountability for the military's crimes to be doing so. Um, you know, for the International Criminal Court, for example, um, the UN Security Council can and should refer the situation in Myanmar to the ICC. So even with the fact that Myanmar is not a party to the Rome Statute, if the UN Security Council were to make a referral, that would allow the, the ICC to investigate and ultimately prosecute crimes committed across um, the entire country. Um, as of now, there is a um, investigation that's ongoing um, specifically related to a certain set of, of crimes um, committed by the military against the Rohingya. Um, that's based on the fact that, that Bangladesh um, is a state party, and so but there's a sufficient nexus of, of crimes um, to, to a state party like Bangladesh that, that they can be investigated by um, the International Criminal Court. And so that, um, that's underway, but, but there are you know, crimes being committed all across the country, and so a UN Security Council referral would allow for the prosecutor of the ICC to investigate the full range of the military's crimes throughout the country against all ethnic minorities and today also against um, um, the Bomar um, in the context of, of the uprising after the coup. It, in addition, you know, we have the the IIIM that was set up um, and that is building criminal investigations, case files um, against individuals um, uh, in the military. You know, they have they have um, said openly in, in, in public communications that that includes crimes committed in the aftermath of, of the coup, that their investigations are looking into to crimes committed in the aftermath of the coup. So that body, you know, needs um, more support. 
um, both financially and also in, in, in its access to make sure that it can get to other countries in the region where, you know, it would best be able to, to build investigations that ultimately it may not be, you know, today or a month from now, but by building those investigations right now in this moment when evidence is fresh, um, it can allow for prosecutions down the road in a variety of different jurisdictions when the day may come that the situation changes such that, um, uh, you know, such that it may be more feasible um, to, to bring prosecutions against against senior leaders of the military. And then finally, and it goes to, to a point you raised, you know, countries around the world, um, many of them can exercise jurisdiction under what's known as, as universal jurisdiction. The crimes that the military has committed, um, crimes against humanity, in the case of, of, of the Rohingya, the UN has, has said um, likely genocide, and of course, you know, war crimes throughout these contexts, um, those are of such a gravity that, that they can be investigated by other countries. Often, for example, as you alluded to, if you know a member of the military were to, to travel to a particular country and, and could then be arrested there for crimes committed in Myanmar. And so we need all of these efforts taking place simultaneously along with, um, you know, targeted sanctions against those responsible for, for human rights violations so that even if they're not facing a court of law right now, they are facing you know, consequences for um, for their their human rights violations. Um, and likewise, again, as, as we've already talked about, you know, stopping the flow of weapons and, and, and other things like that. So we need to see a, all options, you know, really on the table and support for them, you know, by countries around around the world in order to maximize the pressure on the military related to these horrific abuses that have been going on for a while and that continue every day now. I think that's very comprehensive. Um, So Matt, look, I want to thank you for coming on and for sharing this information. And I just want to give you the opportunity to leave the the audience with um, your your final thoughts on this issue. I know it's a very big topic. I know there's a lot uh, going on here and, and, uh, I, I want to make sure that you have the chance to to let the audience mull over the most important uh, points of what we've discussed here today. So, uh, please, if you if you have any thoughts, uh, I'd like you to share them. I think the you know, the two things that I would um, really want to leave people with is is first that um, it's on all of us to to try to bring more attention to the situation here and to make sure that. Our governments, wherever we are in the world, are likewise putting priority on this. I think you know it's been clear to to all of us working on on Myanmar that the international focus has largely moved away. That there was a you know there was concerted attention in the first weeks, months after the coup. But at this point, the international community is paying very little attention um, to the situation in Myanmar, and that emboldens the military to continue to commit these sorts of of horrific violations against civilians. And so there needs to be, from all of us, pressure on our governments, pressure on our media outlets to to cover the situation in Myanmar and to make sure that it gets the attention that that it deserves, given the the situation that people are are facing on the ground. Um, And the second is that, you know, both from a humanitarian and, and, and... the human rights response that organizations on the ground are really doing 
unbelievable work um, on both sides of the border in, in places like you know, eastern Myanmar and the Thailands and then throughout you know, other parts of, of Myanmar. And they're doing so at incredible risk and um, in you know, the most challenging of circumstances. And um, there is a need from donors and others to significantly you know, increase support to, to these frontline organizations who, um, who are responding to these crises every you know, single day. Um, and, and combined with that, if we can get you know, more attention and, and more support for these organizations, that will um, significantly help in, in the short term and then, um, you know, on top of that, again, for all that we have, have talked about here in terms of the need for justice and accountability, and ultimately, the the only way that this is going to change is if the military is brought to justice for the crimes it's committing right now in the East, the crimes it's committing right now in, in places like Chen and Sagain, and then the crimes that it has committed in, in recent years as well. If, if we really want to see you know, a move towards a, a country governments ultimately that respects the rights of all those across Myanmar that's only going to happen through a reckoning of the military with the military's crimes and ultimately justice for those crimes we'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given we simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated, and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. 
Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Yeah.